Now the people of Beshemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beshemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there. And they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were, golden, were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beshemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. And he struck some of the men of Beshemesh, because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them. And the people mourned because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. Then the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? And to whom shall he go up away from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Jerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of the Lord. Come down and take it up to you. And the men of Kiriath-Jerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab, on the hill, and they consecrated his son Eleazar to have charge of the ark of the Lord. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord, and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below Bethkar. Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Good afternoon, church. I am Brian. I am one of the pastors here. It's good to see you this afternoon um, to worship together. Uh, if you're just joining us, a few weeks ago we started a new sermon series called After God's 
own heart. And uh, the way that we're defining that is to be after God's own heart means to love what he loves, uh, to hate what he hates, to, to value what he values. And uh, just to add one more layer to that definition um, or our approach is uh, the importance of having our very most important reference point be God and have that orient our everything, our identities, our lives, um, our sense of belonging. And the example there is uh, babies. Babies, when they're born, apparently that initial bonding um, contact with the mother or the primary caregiver is pretty important because when that happens, something really wonderful happens. And that is the newborn rediscovers the only reference point it ever knew from the womb. And that is what? The heartbeat of the mother. So it's super important for the baby to have that initial contact. Uh, being after God's own heart means being near to God in intimacy um, so that we find our most important reference point in him. And it's that reference point then that gives us an orientation to our identities, our sense of belonging, our purpose in life, uh, gives us our primary joys and peace as well. And so to be after God's own heart necessitates that we be near to him. But here's where we enter into the drama of this passage and all the scriptures, I think, because the thing that we need, which is to be in the presence of God, is also our biggest problem. And I think our passage will show that. Uh, what do you do if being near to God is a risky and dangerous thing? So here's what I want to do. I want to take a look at the following three points to uh, work through the sermon together. And it's this, uh, the problem of drawing near to God the help we need to do it, and the memorials to remind us that God draws us near. So the problem, the help, and the memorials. Let's first start with the problems. There are two problems that uh, arise out of chapters 5 and 6 uh, when it comes to drawing near to God. And those two problems are these. Uh, the first is that God is untame. He's unpredictable. He's unsafe. And two, God is too awesomely good. He's too good. Let's take a look at that first problem. And as a recap, you know, uh, just, uh, just as we get going here, I want to explain. I wanted to just preach chapter 7. But then I was like, well, we need a few, pa a few verses before that to give context. And then it just kept pushing me further back. And so now I have to recap from chapter 4. But I promise I'll do it in like 30 seconds. In chapter 4, Israel is defeated in battle, defeated by the Philistines, and the Ark of the Covenant is captured. And this is a big deal because the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. It was that artifact that was housed in the inner sanctum at the tabernacle. So the Ark of the Covenant represents the presence of God. That's chapter 4. I promise. I'll go through quick here. Chapter 5 uh, we see that the righteous judgment, now that the Ark of the Covenant is in Philistine territory, what we see is that God's righteous judgment is going to fall on the Philistines in three cities. Three cities. Because actually the Ark of the Covenant is going to pass from city to city to city uh, like hot potatoes. Chapter 6, the Philistines say, we don't want this thing anymore in our territory. And so they send it back to the people of God. And there, what we also see is the righteous judgments of God falling not on the enemy nation of God, but on his own people. Now, where I want to go with this is to compare and contrast the 
kind and the, the amount of righteous judgment given to the Philistines in chapter 5 versus chapter 6 when the righteous judgment falls on God's people, on Israel. And so here's what we see. I need to summarize this, okay? From Ashdod to Gath to Ekron, those three Philistine cities, what we see is that God's righteous judgment is going to incrementally get worse. Okay? There are unspecified amounts of people who die. We don't know how many people who died. But we know that many, many people were afflicted with tumors. And that's across the board from all three cities. Uh, Panic in the cities, but from city to city, that panic gets worse and worse and worse. Uh, unspecified numbers of people, I said that, from, but only in Ekron, but not Gath and Ashdod. And again, it gets incrementally worse. That's chapter 5. But in chapter 6, we see that the Philistines have had enough. They say, this thing doesn't have to go home, but it's got to get out of here. And so they send it back to the people of God, to the city of Beth Shemesh. And here's where we pick up in our passage today. Uh, read with me uh, chapter 6, or selections. Now the people of Beth Shemesh were harvesting their wheat in the valley, and when they looked up and saw the ark, they rejoiced at the sight. The cart came to the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh, and there it stopped beside a large rock. The people chopped up the wood of the cart and sacrificed the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the Ark of the Lord together with the chest containing the gold objects and placed them on the large rock. On that day, the people of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices to the Lord. The five rulers of the Philistines saw all this and then returned that same day to Ekron. But God struck down some of the men of Beth Shemesh, putting 70 of them to death because they had looked into the Ark of the Lord. The people mourned because of the heavy blow the Lord had dealt them. And the men of Beth Shemesh asked, Who can stand in the presence of the Lord, this holy God? To whom will the ark go up from here? In chapter 6, like I said, the Philistines send the ark back to Israelite territory. And when it gets there, the people are super excited, right? Because the ark of the covenant was captured in battle. Now it's come back. The presence of God has come back uh, to Israel, they think. And so what they do is take that wooden cart and those cows, um, and offered up as a burnt offering to God. But whether they were ignorant of the fact or negligent of the fact, that was actually a violation of the Mosaic Law. Because according to Torah in Leviticus, what we see is that only male animals could be sacrificed as burnt offerings. But in this case, they sacrificed cows. And also, you had to use fire that was from the tabernacle, and you couldn't just light it up with matches or with kindling or, you know, whatever you had. It had to be fire that was authorized from the temple. And this sacrifice had to happen in the tabernacle, not some random field on some large rock. There should have been judgment. It's, it's something that you would have expected in the text, but nothing. God doesn't act. But then, some who are celebrating as part of the festivities because the Ark of the Covenant came back, Look into the ark and look upon it, um, some translations say. And at that, God suddenly strikes 70 people dead. Not 80, not 90, not 100, but 70. Very specific. But the Philistines across three cities, terror, panic, tumors, unspecified numbers of deaths, 
judgment incrementally getting worse, but what about in Israel? Nothing happens when people wrongfully sacrifice, but then exactly 70 people are struck dead for just looking inside the ark. Why the unequal treatment here? Why is God acting so differently and wildly from city to city, from people to people? Both people liable for sin, clearly uh, one of the lessons from the passage, but why the unequal treatment? And the point is this, it's because God is not tame. He doesn't operate according to your rules. He's unpredictable. God's like a box of righteous judgments. You never know what you're going to get. Remember the exchange little Lucy had with Mr. Beaver in Narnia? Take a look with me. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is the lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. God is a lion, and he's an untamed lion. He's frighteningly powerful. He's not to be trifled with. God is not restrained at all in power, and he can will and act in a variety of ways as he sees. You can't tell an untamed lion to go from here to there. God's unpredictable. He doesn't operate according to your rules. Uh, let me give us a few examples of this. Um, I'm sure many of us have these things called life verses or passages in the scriptures that we always go to, and it, and it seems to speak to us all the time. Maybe Psalm 23 is one of those, like, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Right? A lot of people find that passage very comforting. Well, for me, uh, for a time, it was Ephesians 2 where it talks about how we were dead in our trespasses and how we used to follow the prince of the air, but by grace and by, by his mercy, we were found and we're saved and now we can have this new life in Jesus. And basically, I, I love this passage because it's so um, symmetrical. So like, um, I, I just so clearly see the gospel um, in even the structure of the passage. But you know, every time I've traversed this passage thinking that I would get the same kind of comfort or strengthening or encouragement that I wanted to get, every time it's really been slightly different. It's been nuanced. Um, You know, many of us have gone to retreats at churches and we have the tradition of our annual fall retreat here. Maybe you've been to many of them, most of them, all of them. Um, and um, maybe you've gone to one retreat where God spoke to you just life-alteringly through the sermons and huge spiritual breakthroughs, but that, at that retreat, uh, you didn't meet that many new people, right? Uh, But then you went the following year thinking that you were going to get this life-altering kind of experience through sermons again, but the sermons were just, eh, they're okay, right? And they were encouraging, but it didn't speak to you like the last time, But this time around, you met really good friends, new friends, um, and whom you stay in touch with still and kind of hang out with now on the regular. So you just don't know, right? We, We go to these events, we rely on these certain places where we thought God spoke to us before in our paths, but God doesn't work in the ways that you want him to work. Uh, He's unpredictable. Uh, He won't be tied to any object or event or method. 
Uh, take this example. Um, I know that many of us here are coming from churches that are very different from Exilic Church, so a non-PCA church. And uh, maybe it's a little bit more of a charismatic church. And uh, back where you came from, um, people danced down the aisles with flags or ribbons, and there was a pit in front of the stage for the praise times. And my gosh, people raised their hands during praise. And you come all of a sudden to our church, and we're like pretty silent, right? Pretty quiet, right? When people raise their hands, it's usually like not any higher than this, right? Have you guys seen that chart online? It's not to slack it out or something. Um, and, and, And you come here and you say, you know, a real spiritual church, right, would dance. And a real spiritual church would get loud for the Lord because that's what the Lord deserves, right? But to you, I would say, God's a lion, He's unsafe. He's unpredictable. Right? Why would you try and put him in a box like that? But vice versa. Vice versa. If you're a uh, if you're a exilic person and you've been here for a while and you know you you like the straight laced worship service, so to speak, right? Uh, let's face it though. Like we're New Yorkers, and so it's a transient city. We may not be here for for all of our adulthood, and so at some point you may move out to the burbs. And the burbs that you land in, um, the only church around that actually preaches the gospel and preaches it well, might be a charismatic church. And so you have to go there, and so you go there. But then people are, you know, flying off the walls, well, according to, you know, from your perspective, right? And, uh, you know, people are jumping up and down for, for my gosh, for, for joy. You can't do that during service. You got to be silent during repentance and things. And you say, you know, a real spiritual church, right? A real faithful, committed church, right? A a church that's committed to God's word would never behave or worship like this. And to you, I would say the same thing. God's a lion. He's unsafe. He's unpredictable. Why do we try and put God in a box, try and contain him? He can't be contained. But I have to say, it it is inconvenient to worship a God like this sometimes. He's unpredictable. But I'm sorry that I'm not sorry that God doesn't exist for your convenience. He's God. He's not a pet to take out of the kennel when you want some affection or something. He's Almighty God. He's a powerful lion and he won't be trifled with. He's untamed. He's unpredictable. That's problem number one. That was a lot. Bear with me. Okay. Uh, Problem number two. God is too awesomely good. He's too good. You ever have too much of a good thing? To the point it became a bad thing, right? Like, yes, for me, it usually has to do with two words, halal guys, (laughs) right? And uh, that red sauce is awesome, right? But too much, you're dead. (laughs) You have to be careful with that. Right? What are other examples of that? Water, right? Water's a good thing. It's essential for life. But too much of it, you can drown. Right? Too much of it with the right combination of wind, you get a tsunami, right? That'll wipe out cities and whole and whole coastal lines, right? You can have too much of a good thing. 
Uh, one of my favorite Broadway shows is Les Miserables. Actually, it is my favorite Broadway. And it's about, well, uh, the quote that I'm about to put up on the screen for you is a song that Javert, one of the uh, main characters, sings. Um, and he has a, a few good songs in there. Um, but uh, he's a man, uh, well, he's a police officer. And uh, he thinks of himself as a rather decent, good man because he's on the side of the law. Now, for the entire um, kind of uh, stretch of his career, he's been chasing this one guy, this one criminal who broke parole, and he's the other main character, Jean Valjean. Um, and at the end of the show, or towards the end of the show or the script, uh, those two characters meet face to face, Jean Valjean and Javert, the police officer. And um, he's about to take him in, rein him in, but actually Javert is kind of in this disadvantaged, vulnerable kind of position, and Javert actually has the upper hand and can kill Javert with the flick of his knife. That's what he sings. But in that moment, in that incredible moment of showdown, what we see is that Jean Valjean, right, the criminal, he lets Javert go. He lets him go. He spares his life. And at this, Javert can't stand it. There's this like inner turmoil that starts to happen in his life and he starts to implode. And this is the song that he sings. Uh, take a look with me. Who is this man? What sort of devil is he? To have me caught in a trap and choose to let me go free? It was his hour at last to put a seal on my fate, wipe up the past and watch me clean up the slate. All it would take was a flick of his knife. Vengeance was his and he gave me back my life. Damned if I live in the dead of a thief. Damned if I yield at the end of the chase. I am the law and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity right back in his face. There's nothing on earth that we share. It is either Valjean or Javert. The world I have known is lost in shadow. Is he from heaven or from hell? And does he know that granting me my life today, this man has killed me even so? You know, for Chavert, he thought of himself as a pretty good guy, but he comes face to face with a benevolence, a kindness, a goodness that is way superior to his own, and he can't stand the self-indictment. So he ends up actually killing himself, jumps into the river Sen. He implodes. He comes undone from the inside. You know, when we think about God and how holy he is and how good he is, he's, he's too good. We can't stand it. Have you ever been in the presence of goodness that was too good that you couldn't stand it? Oh my gosh, you were too nice. Get out of here. Get out of our city, New York, or something. Um, in the presence, and that's because in the presence of, let's say, very tall people, it doesn't matter what height you are, you're just going to feel short. Right? Smart people, you're going to feel dumb. In the presence of perfect skin, you're going to all of a sudden be self-conscious about your face. Well, what about in the presence of perfect morality, perfect goodness, perfect wisdom, perfect justice, just perfection? You'll want to curl up. You'll want to shrivel up and ask to be cursed because you won't be able to stand it. And that's the problem that we have with God. He's too good, too good for us. He's untame. He's too ungood, or he's too good. And that's why the people of Beis Shemesh asked this question. Who can stand in the presence of the Lord? 
this holy God? And they don't know. They don't know the answer. And so they send uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant away uh, to the fringe town on the border of the Israelite territory called Kiriath-Jerim. And there it remained 20 years. Can I ask you guys a question? Where's the Ark of the Covenant in your life? The presence of God in your life. Is it in Kiriath Jerim? Has it been there for 20 years? And you know that that's a problem. And you sense that that's a problem. That the presence of God is not in your life. That, that, that he's distant. Right? But that's a problem. But we just said that having him near is also a problem. And so what do you do with this problem? We need help. Here's what we see in the next uh, stretch of our passage today. The help we need to draw near to God. How do you draw near to God then? It's a problem either way. How do you do it? Uh, Well, after a long 20 years, help arrives. Look at the passage with me. From the day that the ark was lodged, that carrieth Jerem, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, if you're returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only. And he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Asheroth and they served the Lord only. Then Samuel said, gather all Israel at Mizpah and I'll pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it over, or poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Twenty long years pass and finally the house of Israel is lamenting after the Lord. They want God's presence in their life again. And just a sidebar application here, as Christians, uh, sometimes it takes a really long time take a really long time before you put up your hands and you realize that you even need help. Uh, It's not all peachy keen. It's not all up and to the right, um, as we talked about in previous sermon series. Sometimes it's just a really, really long dip, and maybe you've experienced that. Um, And especially if you're a new Christian, you need to know that, that sometimes that's just the way that it works. Um, If you come to faith in the last two to three years, let's say, Um, It's common um, for there to be really long dips where you just feel aloof, where you just feel distant from God, like you're not downloading anything from heaven of particular uh, value. Um, But don't be dismayed. Sometimes that's just how it works. And uh, maybe it's not that God is absent, but he's just giving you time and space because he's a good father, something that I'm learning in parenting is sometimes you just have to let your kids have some space and let them figure it out, right? Other times, you need to get close and personal, right? Other times, you just need to clobber them over the head. Um, And that's because God is both a surgeon and a father, right? Sometimes he'll need to cut you. Um, Other times, he'll just give you the space that you need. Well, as the people lament after God, Samuel arrives on the scene, and he's not a boy anymore. He's the prophet of God, and he's going to serve as the mediator standing in the gap between a holy God and sinful people. And what's the first thing that he does? 
to give help to the people, he calls them to national repentance. He calls all of Israel to repentance. What is repentance? Well, putting away idols and serving God only. But in layman's terms, the, uh, maybe uh, another way to say that is to say God doesn't want an open relationship. He wants an exclusive one. So do away with your other lovers and step back into an exclusive relationship that says only you, God, always you, God. Are you in a monogamous relationship with God? Or are you monogamish with God? Because one of the ways that the Bible talks about a relationship to God is that of a faithful husband relates to his wife. But in this case, it's a cheating an adulterous wife. And so is Israel, but they're found. They're ready to make a commitment to the Lord. Uh, they're on the cusp of a major breakthrough in their relationship with God, ready to go steady and exclusive. Um, and they confess, we have sinned against the Lord. But it's just then that the Philistines come up to attack because they know that Israel has gathered at Mizpah. Perfect timing, right? Just as the people of God are about to get right with God, the enemy is on their doorstep. That's what the enemy loves to do and hates to see God's people reunited with God. And so it'll do whatever it can to thwart repentance and reconciliation. It happens a lot more than you think, right? And I'm not, you know, I'm a Presbyterian minister. And so, you know, spiritual warfare stuff gets me nervous, Right? But it's just happened too many times where I really can't deny it. Like, uh, you make a commitment to attend on site service more regularly, let's say. But then a friend from out of town calls and says, Hey, I'm only, I'm only here for Saturday night. Can you hang? And so you go, but then you, you, you get tired for service the next day and you can't make it. And so you have to request for the live stream uh, link. It's, it's always happens. I mean, you've been meaning to start and finish reason for God for real this year, right? But every time you have a block of time to read it, uh, you get phone calls from friends to hang out or, you know, church friends, no less, right, to watch Encanto or something, right, over wine. Um, you see, our recommitments just aren't good enough, right? It's not strong enough. We're not strong enough. And so, we need something. We need something more. We need, we need more help. It's good. It's the first step in repentance, but what else do we need? What else do we need to rely on here? Uh, the, the next uh, verses, why don't you look at it with me? When the Philistines heard that Israel had assembled at Mizpah, the rulers of the Philistines came up to attack. And when the Israelites heard of it, they were afraid because of the Philistines. They said to Samuel, do not stop crying out to the Lord our God for us, that, they may, that he may rescue us from the hand of the Philistines. Then Samuel took a suckling lamb and offered it up as a whole off, burnt offering to the Lord. And he cried out to the Lord on Israel's behalf. And the Lord answered him. While Samuel was sacrificing the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to engage Israel in battle. But that day the Lord thundered with loud thunder against the Philistines and threw them into a panic, to such a panic that they were routed before the Israelites. And the men of Israel rushed out of Mizpah and pursued the Philistines, slaughtering them along the way to the point below Bethkar. Amazing what happens in this passage. Uh, victory for Israel, long-awaited but how did it happen? 
In summary, this is what happened. The enemy is about to attack. The people become shaky. They're at the end of themselves. They cry out to a mediator who sacrifices an innocent lamb. And because the sacrifice of that lamb that day, the people of God are spared. And the enemy is defeated. You know where we go with this every Sunday. It's the gospel coming into view that a righteous mediator who knew the heart of God would offer up his, uh, offer up the blood of an innocent lamb as payment for his for sin. This is the way back into the arms of a holy God because there needs to be a payment made so that we can enter back into the presence of God. It needs to be a righteous mediator. It needs to be a righteous sacrifice. This is what and who Jesus did and was for us. He was the only man to have ever have lived who really was after God's own heart. Early in his Galilean ministry, he healed people, you remember. He healed people. He healed sick people so that they got well. He even brought a little dead girl back to life again. And you see what he's doing. He's reversing the judgments of chapter 5 and 6. Ashdod, Gath, Ekron, Beth Shemesh. And on the night that he would be betrayed... He hosted the Passover meal for his disciples. And you remember this story. It was a really strange Passover meal uh, because you had the bread, you had the cup, you had the bitter herbs, you had the prayers, right? you had the psalms, but no main course. Where was the lamb? Well, the reason the lamb wasn't on the table was because the lamb was at the table. Do you see that the, it was Jesus who was the lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world because unlike Samuel, who offered a lamb for the sins of the people, Jesus was the lamb who would have to be offered for the sins of the people. And so now, because that payment has been made, the presence of God is no longer a scary thing, a terrifying thing, a damning thing. But because Jesus paid it all, it's like the sun that formerly was blistering and suffocating. Uh, you can bask in it now. You can bask in the warmth. You can bask in the light because the umbrella that shields you is Christ himself and he's like a billion SPF protection. The problem's been dealt with. The help has been gotten, the help being Jesus. And so now at the end here, the memorials to remind us that God is near. Samuel took a stone and he sets it up and he named it Ebenezer saying thus far has the Lord helped us and then from that point on the, the, the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines not the Israelites you know Ebenezer means stone of help but again at the beginning what we said was Ebenezer was in chapter 4 that very physical location where the Israelites the people of God saw defeat it was, the, it was the place of their shame, their humiliation. But what's interesting now is that Samuel takes up a stone and names it Ebenezer. What does that mean? It means that the biblical author is trying to convey that what was lost through sin in the first Ebenezer event was restored through the mediator and the blood of the lamb in the second Ebenezer. In other words, the place of defeat has now become the place of victory. How can we apply that to our lives? How can we apply that 
in our weeks. Just a few ideas as we close. Please. I know it's been a long sermon. Um, just a few ideas. Um, sometimes um, a physical act can memorialize the spiritual blessing. A spiritual act can memorialize a spiritual blessing. So an example is a tattoo. I don't know how realistic or practical that is for many of you this week. Um, but, um, it, you know, Ebenezer's, the, the stone of help, serve as sort of like mile markers in your spiritual journey. And whatever that means for you, whatever that memorial that you want to give to the Lord, maybe in this particular season you've been blessed by God in a particular way. And so the way that you want to memorialize that is by serving the church. Right? Joining guest services or joining sound team. This is not just me trying to sell you know, service at the church, but it really can be a way of you to memorialize um, the blessings of God in your life. Um, sometimes it can be with a monetary giving to the Lord, but whatever it is, a memorial of thanksgiving is due to the one who's blessed you. Um, and here's, um, here's another idea. A second idea is um, this week, say sorry to someone. Say sorry to someone that you've offended, someone that you've wronged, someone that you've erred. Because what we're saying is that Ebenezer is the place of your defeat, but it also becomes the place of your victory. And when you say sorry to someone, when you apologize, you are admitting defeat. You're admitting defeat. But I can't tell you how many times in my own life and even currently, you know, um, where I've said sorry to people and it's become the place of hurt, defeat, shame, humiliation. You have to face that. But also on the other end of it, there's real joy and reconciliation and flourishing of that relationship. So set up the memorial of an apology um, this coming week. Uh, whatever you do, uh, do it as a memorial to the Lord remembering that it's in our greatest places of defeat that we can know the victory that was secured for us in Christ. Let's pray. Father, there's probably too much there, and, and we're, we're praying that by your Spirit that you would um, help each and every one of us, wherever we are in our spiritual journeys, uh, to have noticed and picked up um, the right kind of features from this passage. Um, that ultimately their lives would be changed for your glory and that they would finally be able to enter into your presence with gladness and with joy. Uh, give us that blessing. Give us that blessing at Exilic Church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. At this time.